Good morning, Memphis. Oh, we are finally getting that hot and humid weather that I know everyone has been waiting for. Are y'all loving this sweat or no? Um, I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab that cup of iced coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So last weekend, Simone Biles won her seventh national all around at the U.S. Gymnastics Championships. And in an amazing feat, she landed a Yurchenko double pipe vault, something so challenging and dangerous that no woman has ever tried it in a competition before. And while it was undoubtedly impressive and groundbreaking, her scores did not quite reflect her accomplishments. So we know that Biles is the most decorated American gymnast ever with 30 combined Olympic and world championship medals. And she will compete in the Olympic trials later this month. As we look forward to the Tokyo Olympics and the US gymnastics team, I thought we should talk more about gymnastics and race. So joining me today is Dr. Devin Goss. Dr. Goss is an assistant professor of sociology at Emory's Oxford College, and she specializes in the area of race and ethnicity, family, and of course, sports. So welcome, Dr. Devin Goss. It is such a pleasure to have you with us. Hello, happy to be here. Yes. So just so our listeners know, we met um, several, it seems like lifetimes ago at this point, (laughs) but we met as graduate students. And I think we were both kind of like stalking each other a little bit (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because we do have um, some similar research interests around family and race, particularly adoption. And that's kind of how we first met. And then we collaborated on projects together. We wrote a whole book together. (laughs) Old sociology friends. Yes, old sociology friends. But one of your primary interests, though, outside of family is also sports. And so let's just start here. Okay, what led to this interest in sports? Yeah, that's a great question because I definitely was not a sports person before graduate school. Um, But I think landing at the University of Connecticut for my PhD, which does not have a lot going on in that town, except for women's basketball. So I became um, a pretty big fan of the women's team and was following a lot of the conversations about that and noticed that sociology was an area where a lot of the research was being done on sports. And so it just kind of became a natural area of interest. Um, And then I became more and more of a sports fan and started thinking about sociology and all kinds of sports, which has its positives and its negatives. (laughs) Oh yeah, I bet it does. And so of course we're gonna talk about gymnastics today, but are there other sports that are kind of your primary interest or of particular interest for you? Yeah, so I've um, collaborated on an article that looked at kind of, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, because it's very central to the conversation about gymnastics right now, this kind of black brawn versus white 
brains trope in sports where black athletes are really seen as kind of naturally gifted like physical specimens whereas white athletes are seen as really hard workers or more cognitive athletes um and so i collaborated on an article that looked at that mostly in football um a little bit in basketball as well kind of the big sports um but in general i'm more interested in women's sports so that's kind of my sports fandom and gymnastics in particular. Ah, okay. Now, when you were mentioning just already this idea of Black body as being, you know, kind of uh, more athletic or naturally gifted, it makes me think about Simone Biles and, you know, these amazing, just so many <laughs> groundbreaking moves in gymnastics, but it seems like it's people kind of feel like, oh, it's a given that she would be able to do this as if it's just easy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that that is a big part of the rhetoric right now in gymnastics. And it goes back a little bit to this historical shift or change in what's been valued both internationally and then nationally in gymnastics. So um, there was a very big emphasis on a more kind of life, um, flexible um, body type that really excelled in things like the uneven bars or the balance beam. And you could really find those athletes, especially in Europe, um, especially like Soviet Union or post-Soviet Union states. And so sometimes if you listen to gymnastics commentary, you'll hear things like an international look. And mm -hmm. what they're really talking about is this more white typified um, body and skill set. And then we saw the shift where power became really important in gymnastics, things like tumbling, um, things like the vault and the floor. And um, Simone, I think is a great example of those skill sets. Now she's amazing at everything she does. So it's not quite fair to just say she's a power gymnast, um, but she's definitely extremely gifted in tumbling and twisting and things like that. And so there's been a big debate in gymnastics community around judging um, if we're losing something by starting to kind of value those powerful skills more than the more beautiful, um, quote unquote, or flexible skills that have been kind of associated with white gymnasts in the past. Mm, yeah, I really see that. Um, I have always loved gymnastics. Um, I don't know, it's just, it is so beautiful, but also uh, powerful and um, like, awe-inspiring to see, you know, what people can do. And especially now, as you mentioned, talking about kind of this shift to these more power moves or more power in gymnastics. So not kind of this, um, I guess, very quote unquote feminine or soft type of movements, um, but but very powerful. And so I'm wondering even, you mentioned briefly like this idea of scoring, if there will be kind of a divergence in like different tracks, even more so than maybe there has been in the past. Yeah, absolutely. So part of that goes to at the same time, this whole conversation was going down about power gymnasts. Um, there was also a huge shift in how we score gymnastics. So we used to score gymnastics out of a 10 system. So you probably like if you remember, um, like the famous 1996 
games at Atlanta where the U.S. won their first gold medal. That was out of a 10. And that's pretty easy to understand. We still use that system in college gymnastics, but they changed that into what we call an open ending scoring system. So what that means is that there's no top. Things don't top out anymore in gymnastics. You can score hypothetically as high as you want. And your score is made out of kind of two different scores put together. Um, one is that still out of 10 and that's your execution score. It's basically like how perfectly do you do things like with your form and all of that. And then the other is your difficulty score. And that's the one that can go on forever. And that when we talk about Simone and you kind of talked about this a little bit with um, some of the controversy around the values of her skills, that's really what we're talking about. Like what, how difficult are they judging some of these skills to be, especially these brand new ones that have never been assigned a score before. Mm. So I think that's when it does get murky. Like you said, when it's, you know, new skills that have never been scored before. So in many ways, you're kind of setting a standard for what that scoring might look like. But in other ways, you might be using um, other methods or evaluation rather than just, you know, the skill itself, right? Inputting your values or bias into what number to assign, Yeah, absolutely. And that's what a lot of people think has happened. So this really started because she had a skill on the balance beam. It was a dismount. So um, how you come off of the beam and it's crazy hard, complicated. And the score that they give it was really low for what people thought it should be based on just um, considering other similar similar skills, similar difficulty. And um, the kind of international body of gymnastics who are the people who give the valuation said that basically they kind of wanted to discourage um, that skill from being thrown, that it was a little too dangerous, that they didn't love this kind of like really difficult skill. um, And so that they kind of devalued it a little bit. And a lot of people were like, hmm, that's interesting. Why are you choosing to do that? Right? Like, what does it mean that it's attached to a black athlete? Um, what does it mean that it's maybe a racialized sort of skill? And you see that conversation carrying over to her newest vault as well, um, with some disagreement about what exactly it should score at. And if part of um, the kind of a little bit lower score than people were hoping for is because um, there's a bias against sort of this power gymnast that is really typified by a black woman, a black body in gymnastics. Mm-hmm. And I love that kind of explanation of it. So when we're thinking about, again, to bring it back to what you mentioned in the beginning, so this idea of like black, brown, white brains and how a move, right, or a skill could be racialized and in this case devalued because it is associated with black women gymnasts in this case. Right, exactly. This idea um, being that, um she's not working that hard, that it's so natural. So you'll see this a lot, even from people who are huge Simone Biles fans, people who aren't obviously meaning to kind of engage in a racialized language, but they'll say like, wow, this is superhuman that she shouldn't be able to do this. And like a lot of that is true, but it also feeds into this idea of black athletes as kind of genetic freaks, right? Um, this kind of black brawn idea that they're just genetically superior and that's why can, they can do things. Not that 
she's really brave and she's throwing these skills that are terrifying, but she's able to do it. Or that she works really hard, you know, that she goes in, she's pushing herself constantly. She doesn't need to keep upping her value. She can fall on every event and still win. So she's doing this because she has like a tenacity, but you don't usually hear those things kind of associated with her. You more hear just about her physical kind of form, her physical body, her strength. Mm, yeah, you know, it's making me think um, about other athletes, particularly male athletes in some of these um, kind of big sports, right, like football or basketball, and how often the rhetoric is about hard work, dedication, you know, this kind of insane work ethic and schedule of training and really cultivating the body to push itself beyond these limits. And we don't see that same kind of discussion around um, Simone or other, I'm thinking of other Black women in particular as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think part of it for gymnastics might be the way the sport is feminized too and the way that it is especially um more common for younger athletes um so if you ever watch like an olympic broadcast they'll constantly call them like children they'll talk about how they're little girls they'll talk about things like the prom or going to the mall right and so they're constantly kind of devaluing them as athletes and so i wonder if that's also part of it kind of coming together with race to not highlight her other skill sets besides just her, you know, physique that has made her kind of a natural for gymnastics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting that you mentioned that kind of infantilizing aspect of it as well, you know, with even the hairstyles, the bows, the, you know, the way they present themselves, what they wear, um, all of that. And then thinking about you know, these aren't little girls. <laughs> they right. are adult women <laughs> um, who maybe are smaller in stature in some cases, in some cases not, uh, but who in fact are women who are working really hard at cultivating their craft. And especially now we've, um, you know, it used to be for gymnastics that you could be 14 and be in the Olympics. It's now you have to be 15 and turn 16 in the Olympic year. But we've just seen the average age of Olympian gymnasts, especially in the U.S., but also worldwide go up. So Simone is older. Um, there was somebody at nationals who is a mom of two who came back um chelsea memel there's just it's becoming more and more common to kind of stick around a little bit longer than it used to be and so we really have to shift this idea of gymnasts being like little children they're not anymore they're women that are making their own decisions about training regimens and all of that mm -hmm. and i think that's important to to note that there are shifts that have been happening in gymnastics you know, one, this age component, uh, but also kind of the style, right? Um, and then the scoring. So it's not kind of what we might think of in our mind as gymnastics of, you know, the past, but it really is in many ways evolving, although perhaps in some ways kind of staying true to the tradition, thinking about, again, the scoring um, aspect of it, uh, but it really is changing in a lot of ways. Um, now, I know that one part of your research is looking at how we talk about sports and in particular, how we talk about gymnastics or gymnasts um, specifically. Um, so let's take a quick break first. And then when we come back, we'll get into your research. 
This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We are on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Devin Goss, a research expert on race and sports. And we are talking about gymnastics, which I'm sure that everyone is at least thinking about or maybe has heard something about, particularly in the last week with Simone Biles and her um, seventh national all around. And of course, that amazing Yurchenko double pipe vault um, that I think everyone <laughs> was definitely amazed by. Now, Devin, your research um, in part looks at how um, folks or media in particular talk about gymnasts. So tell me more about that research. Yeah, absolutely. So this is research that I did actually with two of my undergraduate students over the past year, um, Nicole Cassabian and Joanna Yu. And what we were interested in trying to figure out is how the sports media discusses Black gymnasts. So um, we were talking before about the shift in um, different kinds of styles of gymnastics in the age of gymnasts. We've also seen a really big shift and who the gymnasts are themselves. So gymnastics used to be, and still is in a lot of ways, a very white sport in the United States. It's really expensive. And so that boxes a lot of people out. It's probably one of the more expensive sports to really get at the elite level in just because of how much you have to pay for a coach and for gym access. It's not like you can set up one of these in your backyard or on your neighborhood block or something. And so it's traditionally been really reserved for white, wealthy individuals. And we've seen a shift a bit, though, with more and more racial diversity, especially um, Asian, Asian American gymnasts in the United States, and also Black gymnasts in the United States. Um, a lot of people inspired by kind of famous Black gymnasts in different time periods. So Dominique Dawes, um, and then we're seeing Gabby Douglas being a big inspiration, and now Simone Biles. So um, we were interested in how the conversation around Black gymnasts had changed sort of throughout the different what we call quadridiums, which is basically the four-year time period between Olympics. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we looked at newspaper articles from 2008 to up to last year, and we hope to collect more. This obviously got a little weird with COVID and being pushed back. Um, and trying to understand how the sports media was talking about Black gymnasts. What were they saying about them? How were they thinking about them in the wider racial landscape? Mm -hmm. So I love this idea of, of tracing kind of over time with some of these kind of key gymnasts, right, that have shaped, uh, shaped the field, if you will. Um, I definitely, you know, remember Dominique Dawes and of course, Gabby Douglas. And it seems like there has been um, a big boom with younger girls, really, especially younger girls of color and black girls in particular, in thinking, oh, this could be me, right? Um, and thinking about, you know, or even parents thinking about, let me get my, you know, daughter involved in gymnastics. And I see so many friends of mine with young girls that are, you know, in gymnastics. Um, but I, but to your point, previously, it is very expensive. And I think people don't realize all the costs that go into it to continue it on to that level and not just kind of like, oh, this is kind of something fun that you're doing, right? Yeah, it's it's extremely expensive when we think about 
sports, you know, it's not a typical high school sport. Some sports, some teams do happen at high school, but most of the time it's, you know, extracurricular. So that alone makes it less accessible for people. And then just the expense of monthly fees for the coaching, for having access to the gym, even things like the leotards are incredibly expensive. Um, It really adds up. And if you kind of dive into the stories of elite gymnasts, you'll see, you know, story after story of them talking about the sacrifices that their families had to make for them to be able to pursue the sports and just an incredibly expensive sport that really keeps a lot of people out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now we're seeing more of this racial diversity. And so I'm wondering in your research, as you all were evaluating kind of these, these commentary, um, did you, what did you all find? Yeah, so we actually saw a lot of conversation about the racial diversity aspect of gymnastics itself, mm-hmm. and a lot of use of Black gymnasts um, at the elite level, on teams, as examples or role models of racial diversity. So a lot of what you were saying before, where um, people would talk about in the sports media that children or little girls are able to turn on the TV for the first time and kind of really see themselves being represented, um, think about themselves as a possible Olympic athlete in that sport in a way that maybe they hadn't ever done before. And then we've seen this kind of huge boom in gymnastics. So, um, you know, it really started after 2012 when Gabby won the all around, we saw this huge boom in enrollment of black girls in gymnastics. And we're kind of seeing the fruits of that labor right now. So if you go turn on Olympic trials in you know, a couple of weeks, or if you watched last week for the nationals, you would see so many more black gymnasts than you have ever been out there at this level before. And it's really because they were those little girls who got enrolled because they were inspired by things like Gabby's success. So it's interesting to see, you know, nine years later, we're really seeing them push up into contention for these big, um, big roles at the elite level. And it will probably continue to keep happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a good point where we are really seeing now what, you know, what the outcome was of someone like Gabby, right. And having, and I think also being um, in that time period where there's more media, more social media, right, in that kind of 2012 type period. Um, so people were really seeing these images and being able to follow her in a way that you weren't able to do in kind of previous years with other athletes or, you know, other sports in general. So yeah. that's part of it. And then also, I know folks are just really excited. Like you said, now we're seeing, you know, the outcome of all those little girls who were inspired by Gabby Douglas. Uh, We're seeing that kind of play out now. And in thinking about what the Olympic team might look like, I know folks are really excited about the possibility of even an all black women's gymnastics team as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, You know, prior, like in 1996 and on, there would be maybe like one or two athletes of color on on the gymnastics US team. And then last in 2016, we saw a majority um, minority quote unquote team for the first time with just two white athletes out of five. And um, it's looking like that'll definitely continue into the next one um, with a mix of mostly Asian and black athletes at the top right now. Um, And so it's a pretty big tide shift to be honest. 
list where, um, you know, in even as early as 2000 or as late as 2008, white athletes were really dominant on the teams and we don't see that as much anymore. It's really more diverse. Mm -hmm. So in one aspect, you found that commentators were commenting right on this kind of um, change in, in racial composition, um, but also really kind of, I guess, heralding or, or these athletes as role models of racial diversity. And so we see, kind of, again, those kind of outcomes, perhaps, of that. Um, but what else did you find as far as what media folks were saying? Yeah, the other thing we saw come up a lot is putting black gymnasts in context of larger debates on racism and the salience of race in society. Um, so, you know, race was definitely like a big topic during this time period we looked at. And so a lot of times these athletes were used as kind of case studies for larger conversations that were already going on. So there was a very big controversy um, that happened to Simone um, where a black gymnast that was Italian said that she should, um, they should all paint their faces black so that they could win too. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they apologized for the remark, said that it was kind of a, a difference of like a cross-cultural difference and not understanding, but it was obviously very controversial. Simone at the time didn't really comment on it. Um, and, but it, it made like a media firestorm. And so that came up a lot as this kind of conversation about racism and gymnastics. Um, it also lends itself a little bit to this idea that um, the racialization of certain moves maybe, or of certain um, types of gymnastics was being favored, right? Um, and so this gymnast was saying that's the way that she could kind of cheat the system. Um, there was also a lot of conversations about the racial diversity of these teams being emblematic of colorblindness. Mm -hmm. um, and so this idea that um, because there's been this shift to a more diverse or multicultural gymnastics team or more um, different types of athletes getting involved into gymnastics, that means that race doesn't really matter anymore in our society. And Simone herself early in her career wouldn't really talk about race much. Um, we found a couple of really interesting interviews with her and her old coach or her old coach who was white kind of like stepped in and said like, oh, Simone doesn't think about race at all, which I thought was really interesting. And we obviously see that shifted a lot since then, maybe just you know, she's, she's a lot older now. She has a new coach now. She's also um, more, she's in charge of her career in a way she wasn't before, right? Like she, she's going to make the team no matter what. <laughs> and so she can say what she wants to say. And we've seen her really step up for activism and things like that. But it was interesting to see her really downplay race earlier in the career as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just about to say, um, in thinking about Simone, that I never really remembered her talking about race so directly, um, kind of earlier, whereas again, as you mentioned, we see a change now, which could be attributed to a variety of different factors. Um, but I think it's really telling that in this example, this one example you've given of her coach kind of stepping in, right? And I think in many ways, kind of setting the boundaries of what can be talked about or not talked about in gymnastics. Um, I can't imagine that Simone wasn't thinking about race, right? right? Um, but 
that coach, you know, again, coaches having a lot of power over many different aspects of the sport, um, but kind of stepping in and setting that clear expectation of like, we're not going to talk about that, or this isn't the appropriate topic for what's happening here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that goes back a little bit to this idea that gymnasts were kind of infantilized and they should kind of be, you know, seen and not heard. And so they weren't really encouraged to go out and talk much about their opinions on things that were going on in the social world or on politics. We saw that shift a lot with Black Lives Matter movement the last year. And, you know, Simone, as well as other high profile gymnasts have really come out and talked about things like um, Black Lives Matter. They've talked about anti-Asian violence. Um, and so it's it's shifting a lot in gymnastics, I think, both at the college level and at the elite level. And it'll be interesting to see if that continues on after Tokyo or if it kind of goes back to the way it was before where politics was seen as outside of the realm of gymnastics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that Tokyo um, example will be very telling since already we've, you know, seen announcements um, and strict rules around what athletes can and cannot do, in particular around uh, being uh, vocal about social justice movements, right? So we saw that announcement come out um, a while ago saying that it was explicitly banned. Um, so, I mean, things like that. Um, and then also thinking about with, you know, whomever may make the final team for the U.S. gymnastics team, um, again, what might be the conversations around race, whether it is that colorblind kind of sentiment again, or if there's, you know, a new perspective that commentators might be taking. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting. Um, we're seeing even in the commentary, it's shifted a little bit where I'm noticing them talk more about the gymnast activism outside of the gym. Um, I think part of that is just because social media is so prevalent now that when these gymnasts are really using their platforms on social media to talk about things like Black Lives Matter, um, it comes up in the broadcast, right? And it might be kind of part of like a fluff piece um, where they talk about that as activists. So that's really shifting in, in a new way that we haven't really seen other Olympic teams kind of take this more activist stance in gymnastics. So it'll be very interesting to see if it continues on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I know um, a couple so far you've talked about how you've seen commentary around Black gymnasts as kind of role models for racial diversity and then this colorblind piece that we just talked about. But were there other ways um, that media was talking about Black gymnasts Black gymnasts. Yeah, the last way that we saw, and this um, kind of goes back to some of the conversations we've already been having, as um, really emblematic of this Black physique, this um, superior sort of physical specimens that are able to do so well in gymnastics just due to their genetics, right? Not because um, of their talent or their hard work or anything else, but there was a lot of focus on things like their leg size, their muscularity, their ability to twist and turn in the air, especially with Simone and Gabby. And then um, there was also a lot of focus on things like their hair. Mm -hmm. And so that's been a controversy, especially that Gabby has dealt with the past yeah. two Olympics. <laughs> um, and so we saw that come up again and again as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely remember Gabby and all the controversy around her hair. And, you know, it just makes me think again, kind of 
back to what we were talking about with the coaches, but just this idea of gatekeeping around who is a gymnast, what a gymnast should look like, um, you know, appropriate comportment in many ways. Um, and I know that Gabby really was, you know, had a lot that she had to take on in dealing with that. Yeah, it definitely um, highlights this interesting aspect of gymnastics as a sport, right? Where it's a sport in that it's like an athletic pursuit, but it also has a very specific kind of feminized beauty that goes along with it. And then that feminized beauty has been coded as white. Um, and that's not always discussed out loud, right? But they didn't like the way that her hair looked because it didn't look the same as um, kind of the white gymnasts. Even though if you watch those broadcasts back, the messy buns that the white girls were styling were not particularly like beautiful or fancy or anything, but they weren't necessarily the ones who um, got called out on the broadcasts. And so um, I think it really goes back to this idea, this tension where black women gymnasts are not only dealing with or contending with whiteness, but they're also contending with feminized whiteness um, in this way that um, the white women aren't necessarily thinking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's such an important point to bring up uh, because one, we do see, again, just thinking about the impact of Black women gymnasts on, you know, young girls or even young women and thinking about this idea of beauty and femininity and whose standard, right, that may be, um, that aspect of it. And then kind of similar to what we talked about in the first segment, this idea of not only racializing specific skills, but also racializing, again, these specific kind of beauty standards or when people particularly transgress what are quote unquote the norm. Yeah, I think it's very similar in some ways to some of the conversations around Serena Williams and um, especially like the cat suit that she was going to wear and that got shot down and the conversations about why was that? Was it in a racialized sort of um, issue with the outfit. And I think it's similar in gymnastics in a lot of ways where the standards are very centered around white femininity, even if not everyone realizes that that's what they've done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it is in these moments when Black gymnasts are being criticized in these various ways where we see kind of those unspoken norms or standards really coming to light. Um, I'm wondering in the course of your research and your analysis, um, were, was there commentary about the Asian gymnasts? Because I know you mentioned big shift to also including um, Asian gymnasts. Was there any commentary and was it similar or different to what folks were saying about the Black gymnasts? That's such a good question because Asian gymnasts have had a very interesting relationship within sports commentary for a long time. So um, they're interesting because they've been kind of grouped, especially gymnasts from China, which has been really a gymnastics powerhouse for so long, um, have been grouped with that more um, European look for mm -hmm. a long time. So they're um, seen as kind of lithe and flexible and beautiful and elegant. Um, and so they kind of get racialized as white in that particular way. But then there are very interesting commentaries um, about kind of the political situation in countries like China, the specific sports training regimens that are different where, um, you know, 
the gymnasts don't necessarily live with their parents. Um, and so there's been a lot of conversations that are very anti-Asian about things like um, suggesting that there's falsified documents for some of these gymnasts. And so Asian American gymnasts are in an interesting place where there's, um, you know, they're kind of in between some of the racialization that black gymnasts go through, but they're not seen as white at all here in the United States either. And so what we do see, um, especially for some of the Asian gymnasts um, that are at the elite level right now and are competing, um, many of them have actually been adopted from Asian countries and adopted into white families and they're, you know, US gymnasts, but they'll constantly bring up the adoption um, all the time on the broadcast. Um, and you study adoption, so I'm sure you know how problematic this can be. I remember one time Morgan Hurd, who is one of the um, kind of elite gymnasts, was adopted from China um, as a little girl. And they said, the commentary said, I bet China wishes that they could get her back. And I just thought, wow, that is um, a very interesting commentary. So it is interesting how they're kind of treated as foreign, even though they're Asian American. Um, and that's been a constant issue I've seen over the last quad, especially. Mm, yeah, I'm also wondering, as you were talking about kind of how um, the commentary is around Asian Olympians in gymnastics, right? Um, and again, this idea of the body and maybe particularly skilled, um, inherent, right? Um, and I'm wondering if for the Asian American gymnasts, are there those same kind of conversations where maybe they are um, emblematic of, you know, the Asian body in this? Yes, case? absolutely. So we see that um, a really great example is Sunisa Lee. Um, so she is definitely seen, she's Hmong, um, Hmong American, um, and would be, I think, the first Hmong American, definitely the first Hmong American gymnast, but I think one of the only Hmong American Olympians if she makes it. So very exciting for that community. And and she's very, she talks about her Hmong heritage all the time, is very proud of that. Um, but if you watch the commentary, it goes very to that idea of her being emblematic of this kind of life international look. They'll often talk about that with her um, and being her specialty is the uneven bars, which is often seen as a specialty of Asian countries, especially China. So they definitely use sort of this genetic rhetoric to explain her success as well. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing again, this kind of reification of race and genetics in explaining um, gymnasts of color, their accomplishments. Um, and again, you know, even further kind of establishing whiteness as the norm, right? In gymnastics through these conversations as well. Right. So we're gonna take another quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana and I'm joined by Dr. Devin Goss, a professor of sociology at Emory's Oxford College. And we have been talking about gymnastics. I think childhood me is like super excited <laughs> that we can even have this conversation. And I'm definitely looking forward to, you know, who makes the, you know, the team and seeing what happens in Tokyo. So I know a lot of folks are excited about that as well. So I'm wondering, you know, something that um, I know we've been focusing primarily on Black gymnasts, but I'm also wondering if there are Latino American gymnasts as well. 
that are yeah, so, competing on the elite level. I mean, of course they are, but so there, um, there is, there's less, um, there has been kind of less than black gymnasts and Asian American gymnasts, but probably the most famous recent example is Lori Hernandez, who mm-hmm. is Puerto Rican. Um, and she definitely had some very interesting racialization when she was competing um, up to 2016. She made the 2016 Olympic team um, and people called her baby Shakira. So that was kind of her nickname, not just like, you know, on Twitter, but in the sports media, she was asked how she felt about it. She said she didn't mind, Um, but it definitely, I think, showed this sort of idea. There was also a lot of rhetoric about how she was a naturally gifted dancer. She was kind of fiery. Um, So we saw those kind of stereotypes really play into the commentary about her as well. Um, But in general, there just hasn't been as many um, Latinx gymnasts to kind of reach that top level in the United States. So we haven't seen it as much. There are a couple of examples, but um, in general, not as many as the other groups. Mm-hmm. And since I know that one of your areas of interest, obviously, is a family, and that's where our research interests intersect, I just really have to go back to the comment about the Chinese adopted gymnasts and just other, you know, Asian adopted gymnasts as well, um, particularly the example you gave in the last segment about Morgan and the comments, uh, because she is a Chinese adoptee, and the comments of, oh, I bet China wishes they had her back, which I'm just like, yeah it is it's um very interesting there's um at least three um gymnasts that are all adopted from some place in asia and it comes up constantly within the broadcast like you will hear that they're adopted every single time which i think is interesting it doesn't seem to be that relevant of a piece of information about their gymnastics right um but it comes up every time in the broadcast um also this idea about um, that they therefore have some sort of specialized skill set from that country comes in a lot. And this is both on the men and the women's side, there's adoption and it comes up there. So it doesn't seem to necessarily be a gen- gendered phenomena, but something that the sports commentators seem to really hit on a lot. Mm-hmm. Wow, I think that's really interesting because I'm thinking about adoptees in other sports and I don't think it really comes up in the commentary, even though for fans they know and it's you know kind of maybe a point of um, pride amongst adoptees but not something that the commentators talk about so I'm also wondering how this sport in particular plays a role in that yeah I think part of it might be the sort of um age or the supposed age of gymnasts. So there's a lot of focus on families, family dynamics, family structure, um, especially earlier on, if you watch like previous Olympic commentary, they'll talk a lot about the divorce of parents and how that was really difficult for someone. Um, You know, Simone Biles family structure has come up a lot and it's um, discussed in a very racialized manner. So she um, is also adopted. She's adopted by her biological grandmother and grandfather. Um, And there's constant conversation about how she came from like a broken, quote unquote, broken family. Um, They'll talk about how she was in foster care for a little while. And that comes up 
it came up all the time in 2016. Um, there was actually a pretty big outrage that happened around adoption and commentary because um, she calls her um, grandparents her mom and dad. They raised her. That's how she associates with them. And um, one of the commentators on NBC refused to call them that. The, he called them grandparents. And it really upset a lot of people watching who said like, no, that's her mom and dad you need to refer to them that way. And he kind of like um, wouldn't back down from it. And he ended up not doing gimnastics commentary anymore. So it it's definitely plays a center role, this conversation about families, family formation in the sports of gymnastics in a way that, um, you know, maybe doesn't in other sports because there's not this idea that they're 16 year olds who like mom and dad drove to the Olympics or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking, especially through the lens of adoption, how, how this just adds on to the infantilizing of adoptees. So we have gymna gymnastics as a sport that's already kind of um, freezing these folks in childhood. Right. And then you have that extra layer of adoption that often, you know, wants to freeze, you know, adoptees into childhood as well. So you see that converging. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so this is, I'm still like so mind blown over the, the China <laughs> comment. Like I just cannot get over that. And I'm also wondering if it is, I'm assuming that the majority of, especially the international adoptees are adopted by white families. Um, and so I'm also wondering how that piece comes into the focus on adoption. So yeah, I think there is this underlying conversation or assumption that look, they're so lucky that they were adopted into these amazing white American families that can put them into gymnastics and that have the money to do so. And now they're Olympians or elite, you know, medalists. And wouldn't it be so sad if they were still stuck in whatever country and not able to to reach their potential. I think that it's this American exceptionalism that sort of runs under the commentary as well, even though it's not always as explicit as, as explicitly said as that, but that's definitely sort of the assumption. Right, definitely a, a success story too, right? We love our kind of rags to riches or kind of buy your bootstraps type story. And this of course makes for a really compact narrative Around. Yeah, exactly. Right. So kind of putting them as they'll always talk about them, not just as being adopted, but as in orphanages, they always use the orphanage word. Right. And so that really highlights that as well, this sort of rags to riches story. Right. Absolutely. I had no idea that all of this was happening <laughs> within gymnastics. I'm, you know, more of a, a casual, you know, watcher, I guess. Um, but as you were talking, you know, it just made me think differently and kind of even putting the pieces together in my own mind about, you know, whether it's articles I've read or, you know, listening to commentary and thinking about, oh, yeah, I've definitely heard, you know, like this language used. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually um, what we're hoping to study next is to go back through and watch um, the broadcast themselves of the Olympics during this quad, these quads that we studied the um, newspapers and to see how they're talking about the gymnasts sort of in real time. Um, because the sports commentary um, broadcasts are such a 
um, important touchstone for really, especially in a sport like gymnastics, where people might not be super familiar with it. They probably don't follow it all the time. They might not know how exactly it scores. You know, how it's talked about in, over the Olympics is really going to shape what you think, right? It's helping you interpret the sport. And so if they're using racialized notions of gymnasts or notions about their family, that's going to probably influence what you think. Um, and so I think it's really important to think critically about that um, and not just be a passive sort of viewer of the sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I've talked about kind of this critical consumption of media before with other guests. And, you know, so much of what we consume um, on TV, on social media, or wherever, you know, we're not actively kind of analyzing <laughs> everything, but we're still getting those messages, though. And we're still kind of incorporating them into how we think about the world around us, whether it's gymnasts or kind of athletes more broadly. So it is really really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes we can think of sports or there is this idea that sports is kind of outside of that, that it's objective and, you know, you're just watching and seeing who scores the most points. But when you really take a step back and like listen to broadcasts or things like that, you realize that there it's really a narrative that's going on and being created for you. And if you're not right there watching it in the stadium, you know, you're taking somebody else's perception and the way that they're filming it and shooting it and packaging it all together and taking that so it's important to you know step back and kind of wonder a little bit about that be a little skeptical yes now since of course the olympics are coming up um what are your predictions on who's going to make the team <laughs> that's a great question um i think so it's an interesting team this year because there's these four team slots and then there's these two individual slots which we've never had before so it's super weird um but for sure it's going to be Simone unless something horrific happened there's no way she wouldn't be on the team um Jordan Childs who's also a black gymnast and trains with Simone actually it looks like she's pretty much locked herself in as well. Sunisa Lee as well. Um, she just adds a lot in terms of her skill set. And then that fourth spot is just completely up in the air. So it is impossible to know. Basically, the United States is so deep in gymnastics that they could send a team of almost, you know, a per permutation of 10 different people and still win head and shoulders above. So yeah. it really depends on who's going to have this great night on Olympic trials, I think, that will determine that fourth spot. And so there's a couple different contenders. Um, Leon Wong is one. Um, Grace McCallum is one. Um, Emma Malbuyo is one. So as you can maybe tell from the names, it's a pretty diverse group. Um, but we just, it's going to come down to the wire, I think, which will be really interesting. Oh, so that means it'll be really exciting to watch these Olympic trials and to bring it back to how we started. Thinking about the scoring is going to be so important, right? With yeah, this much talent. Now, I know there's no way to know who might fill that fourth slot, but if you were able to pick, is, do you have like a dream team or someone that you are just like, oh, I hope that she has a, a great night? And yeah. There's one gymnast that I'm a really big fan of. Her name's Riley McCusker. She hurt her ankle um, a few weeks ago. So she actually only did 
uneven bars at championships. She made it to trials though. She petitioned and I'm hopeful that she gets one of those individual spots or has like some amazing glow up and is able to get that fourth spot. And then um, Leanne Wong looks amazing right now. And I think she would make a great fourth edition. So she has a good trials. Um, I definitely think she has a great shot, but it'll be really competitive and interesting. There's there's no, it's not like other years where we kind of knew who was going to make the team. Um, mm-hmm. There's big question marks. And I think that that's really exciting for the sport um, because it's not always clear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sometimes it, there's just a set team that's kind of got to go through the trials process, but it's pretty clear who's going to make it with a couple of exceptions for this one. There's a lot of conversations that could happen. Mm-hmm. I think that's what makes sports so exciting is when you don't know, right? I mean, of course, there's always the fun if, if you're rooting for a particular team or individual where you're like, yes, I know they're, you know, locked in like Simone, right? <laughs> uh, but this gives folks, I think, something to look forward to. And maybe even for folks who haven't been that keyed into gymnastics, it's also something where you could get excited about wondering, you know, what's going to happen? Because I can only imagine the level of competition for the trials is going to be just <laughs> out of this world. It's going to be amazing. In some ways, I think that it's more exciting than the actual Olympics itself, because, um, you know, as long as Simone has a good day, we kind of know the U.S. will win the team medal at the Olympics. But for trials, it's a real, like, underdog sort of fight for those spots. And I think that that makes it really fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm excited. I'm definitely going to be tuned in because now I really need to know who's going to cinch that final spot for the team. Well, Devin, it has been such a pleasure to have you here with us this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again to my longtime sociologist friend, Devin Goss. You know, I have always loved gymnastics, loved watching gymnastics. Um, I'm not that coordinated to be a gymnast, but it's also, it's always been fun to watch. And now after this conversation, I'm even more excited to watch these Olympic trials so I can see who is going to secure this fourth and final spot on our Olympic gymnastics team. This is really exciting, y'all. I hope that you have learned a lot about gymnastics and maybe you're excited as well to watch these trials. And then of course, the Olympics as well. I wanted to leave you with a positive note and from whom else but Simone Biles. So she says, being a gymnast means having the strength to hold on and the courage to let go. And I think that's so applicable, even though you're probably not a gymnast. I know I'm not a gymnast, but I think, you know, having the strength to hold on and the courage to let go is definitely something that all of us can cultivate and that will definitely make our lives more fulfilling as well. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM every Saturday morning. I'm here at 9 a.m. and you should be too. Now, if you miss the show, you know, you can always tune in on WYXR.org or on Apple and Spotify. Share the show with a friend and then come back next Saturday morning.